right, so again, welcome. It's good that you are all here. Before I begin my message, we need to honor our two guests, Nick and Ava. Nick and Ava were married on Friday night, and they're at the Stello Grove on Sunday. Stand up! Stand up! It was my honor to officiate the wedding, so it's just great to see them here. It's so fun, and I I could kind of do the whole service again, but just for you, sort of, my message today is on marriage and sex. So what a great place for you guys to be here today. So yes, I am talking about marriage and sex today. Some of you probably like, wow, this is a good day to visit this church. Does he do this all the time and frequently? But anyway, so we are in the series right now where we are talking about sexuality and we're talking about spirituality. And I love this topic because deep down inside of us, God has created us with this deep, deep need to connect with other people. He's also connected to give us a deep need to connect with himself. So to study spirituality and sexuality is a really good thing for churches to do because God has called us all to live in covenant and to live in community. In fact, our longing to have deep and meaningful friendships is actually part of perfection that God has put into us. See, in Genesis 1 and 2, I'm going to repeat a little bit of last week's message because Becky told me to, and it was good. So I'm going to repeat a little bit from last last week about friendship as we talk about marriage this week. I don't want people that are single this week going, man, I'm missing out. No, we're also going to talk about the importance of friendship. When you read Genesis 1 and 2, everything's perfect. God created the world, and God goes through and says, this is good, this is good, and this is good. And then we get to Genesis 3, and in Genesis 3, the narrative of the entire rest of the Bible shifts as sin enters into the world. But in Genesis 1 and 2, God names everything good, and then he comes to Adam, and he pauses, and he says, something's not right here. He says, something's not good here. And what's not good there is the fact that Adam is alone. Adam's alone, and God says that is not good. And I love how Tim Keller summarizes this passage. He says Adam was not lonely because he was imperfect. Adam was lonely because he was perfect. See, the ache for friends is one of the only aches that is not the result of sin. This one ache to have deep and meaningful relationships And friendships is part of the perfection that God has put inside each and every one of us. Adam could not enjoy living in the Garden of Eden alone. See, God has called us to live in community. We cannot enjoy life if we are doing it alone. We need to be connected with other people. And that kind of is news for people in our country because in our country, we kind of like this individualistic thing. We think, I can get through life on my own. I really don't need other people. In fact, in our country, sometimes we feel like we're a little needy. We're a little clingy if we want deep and meaningful friendships. See, that's exactly not true at all. Your desire to have deep and meaningful friendships is part of the fact that you are a healthy individual. God has created each of us with a deep desire to live in community and to live with friendship. So last week we talked about friendship, and I talked about this deep neurobiological need that we have to have authentic friendships, to have friends with people where we can be vulnerable, where we can be honest, and where we can be transparent. And the world-famous researcher and author and psychoanalyst Robert Stellaro, 
He has determined that the greatest indicator of a person's health, the greatest indicator from a person who goes through trauma, who goes through difficult times, the greatest indicator of them going from defeat into victory was not self-determination. It was not time. And it had nothing to do with the degree that they were traumatized. The one variable that determined if a person was going to go from a trauma into victory was deep and meaningful friendships. The person that had deep and meaningful friendships that could relate to another person and have a friend that would listen to them was the indicator of whether a person would go from defeat into victory. See, we all need friends to live in victory. None of us can live and survive alone. We have to have friends And sometimes God actually calls us to have more than just a friendship. He calls us to be married. And I believe marriage is a calling. I believe that marriage is a vocation. I don't think it's something that we enter into just because we're like, hey, I like this person. This might be kind of fun to do. But we enter into marriage because God calls people to be married together. See, part of the biblical mandate for marriage is, number one, you do have fun. You have friendship. You enjoy each other. Part of a biblical mandate of marriage is to have sex, to enjoy sex, and to, uh, and to populate the earth. But there's another part of uh, uh, marriage that John Mark Comer refers to as gardening. See, part of marriage is we're called to garden together. In Genesis 1 verse 28, God said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and the animals that scurry along the ground. That's gardening. See, God calls people in the marriage together to do something that's bigger in their marriage. If you get married, if your marriage, this thing is driving me nuts. I'm just not going to move the rest of the service, which I cannot do. See, let me tell you, I'll, I'll, all right, let's, let's pause a minute. I'll share with you two of my favorite books, literally two of my top favorite four books in the world, Unwanted by Jay Stringer and Loveology by John Mark Comer. A lot of my message and a lot of this series is taken from these two books. So I'm kind of giving my little disclaimer here because I'm going to probably plagiarize at some point. I probably should give credit. So let me pause. John Mark Comer, Loveology. Great book. If you asked me to do your wedding and you gave me more than a 48-hour notice, I would say read this book. It's mandatory reading to get married. I love this book. And I mean, who, I mean, you have to love this book because it's laid out so cool as well. So, I mean, it has a style, design, and content. I mean, what more can you expect from a book? So a lot of my stuff is coming there. John Mark Comer, he's like, yeah, if you get married just because you think we're going to have fun and a lot of sex together, your marriage is going to fizzle out. Your marriage has to be something bigger than just the two of you. It has to be for the gardening project that God has called you to. That God has called you as a couple to do something that is bigger than you could do as individuals. See, so many people, we want to get married and think, oh, I get married and I'll be happy because this is my friend and we'll just do lots of intimate stuff and have friends. That's going to fizzle. That's not going to sustain your marriage. Happiness in marriage is because of obedience to God. When you enter into obedience to God in your marriage, that is where you're going to find happiness. So let's get back to sex. See, the very first commandment in the Bible, what I just read in Genesis 1, was what? Be fruitful and multiply. That's the very first commandment given in the Bible is to have sex. 
It's not a don't do this, don't do that. No, it's to actually have sex. God, the first commandment is to have sex. But the funny thing is, in church culture, we don't talk about sex very much. A lot of people in my profession, a lot of pastors, we get all nervous and embarrassed when we talk about sex, and, and we don't do it, and we stumble through, and we get embarrassed. And so what we typically do in the church culture is we tell you everything you can't do. We're really good at putting lists of what thou shall not do. But you notice the Bible starts with what you should do. See, sometimes in church culture, we don't spend enough time talking about why does God give guidelines to sex and marriage? What is God's original intent for sex and marriage? So see, this is usually the current landscape. This is usually what happens in the church world. People in my profession, we like to stand up. We like to tell everybody the rules of what you can't do. We're not very good at following it up with a why. Why does God have these guidelines? Why does God have these instructions? So over time, people outside of the church have looked at us like we are irrelevant and we have nothing worth sharing. In fact, Gabe Lyons and David Kinneman in 2016 with the Barna Research Group did this big research on what is a people's view outside of the church on Christians. They wrote a whole book called Good Faith. The whole summary of this whole book, the whole gist of this whole book and all the research they did is that people outside of the church look at people on the inside of the church and they have two words to describe them. Number one, irrelevant. And number two, extreme. That is the common view of people outside of church, perspective of people inside of the church. And we kind of deserve that. We deserve that a little bit. See, they think we're extreme and they think we're irrelevant because so often we can't explain our views. We tell people a lot of rules, but we have no understanding why. Now, see, in the prior generations, this kind of worked good. You just tell people what you can do and not do, and then they pretended to follow along and everything was okay. This emerging generation says, no. You tell me a rule, you better follow it up with a reason why. The younger generation is looking for answers, and they're looking to the church for answers, and we're not doing a really good job giving them. So in 2016, the world is, the the Christians are viewed as strange and irrelevant and extreme. In 2022, do you know what our reputation is outside of the church? We're now viewed as a threat. Most people outside of the church look at people inside the church and we think we're a threat. And they think we're a threat because they don't want us to shove our extreme and irrelevant ideas on everybody else. That's why the world thinks we're a threat. They don't like our views and they don't want them to shove them on the world. And to be honest with you, I don't blame them. I don't blame the world. The church has done a poor job of representing Christ's view of sex and sexuality and marriage. The church has not done a good job of explaining why God would have boundaries around sex and intimacy. The church hasn't done well. It bothers me. It's hurt a lot of people. And if you've been hurt by the church, 
and their view of sex. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Way too many people inside of the church have used too much hate and bitterness and anger at people. And it grieves me deeply. People inside the church, their views and hatred towards the LGBTQ community is extremely poor. And it makes me sad. I talk to people all the time who've been hurt by the church. And I'm sorry if you've been hurt by the church and their views of sex. We need to do better. We need to do a whole lot better. One of my favorite authors on the topic of sexuality and spirituality in the church is Preston Sprinkle. I think he is a prophetic voice that needs to be heard among the nations. And he has this good quote, and I think it should be known. He says, if we get the Bible right, but we get love wrong, we're wrong. You can't get the Bible right and love wrong and think you're winning. You can't. You have to get love right, and you have to get the Bible right. So anyway, okay, we got through that point. So, um, so I think in the church, we've spent so much time talking about what you can't do. People inside the church have had a very difficult time explaining why. Why did God create sex? What was God's intention for what he did, why he created sex? I think if we spent more time talking about that, we might be able to influence the world in a little better way that we could share with the world actually what is God's plan. So what is sex? Let's get there. So basically there's two different views of sex in our world, in our culture. Number one, you have kind of the world's culture about sex, and then you have more of a biblical view of sex. Now I'm going to just kind of give quick little outlines of here, so I'm not going to do a perfect job, so I hope I don't offend anybody. But anyway, you have the cultural view of sex, is that they view sex as just strictly recreation, or it's just strictly entertainment between uh, consenting adults. You just do it for pleasure. It's something you do for pleasure. It's, it's just nothing more than people coming together, consenting to enjoy their time together. That's more of a world definition of sex. And then you have more of a biblical definition of sex. And I recognize in the church you have a thousand and one different definitions, but we're going to talk about more of a traditional biblical sexual ethic is viewed by followers of Jesus. And in this view, we view sex as it is something physical, and it is something recreational, it is something enjoyable, but it's also very spiritual. It's also something that is incredibly powerful, and it's so powerful that it has to be done within the covenant of marriage to protect everybody involved. See, marriage is, is, sex is so powerful, it can easily hurt people if it's done poorly or it's done wrong. A lot of people have a story or a situation where sex has hurt them, and God is well aware of that. So he says, I want sex to be done within the covenant of marriage to protect the people involved. I'm going to explain a little bit more about that, but that is basically our two different views. So what does the Bible actually have to say about sex? To understand that, you have to go back to the very first marriage between Adam and Eve. Remember when Adam and Eve um, kind of joined the world, they were single people. In, Acts, in Genesis 2 verse 4, it says, therefore, this is God's doing the very first marriage on Adam and Eve. 
It's kind of going to be the prototype marriage for the rest of the world to follow. And so God's doing this marriage, and, and he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Kind of an interesting marriage. You know, there's no mom and dad there. There was just Adam and Eve. But we had the language that was set up to be a prototype for the rest of the world. And so here we have Adam and Eve, and what does God say? He said the two will become one flesh. See, right there is the power of sex. That two people can become one flesh. So what is sex? Sex is the joining of two people into one entity. When two people have sex, they become one entity, body, soul, and spirit. It's kind of fun. The Hebrew word for one is eshed. Eshed, that's kind of a cool Hebrew word. And when you put the Hebrew word one eshed next to the word flesh, the best way to describe it is that it's fused together at the deepest level. That's what sex does. It fuses two people together as one. And that's beautiful. That's really fun. That's extremely powerful. And that is very, very good. Unless... You had Eshed with a person that you don't want to be one with. Then suddenly we don't really like that so much because there's no such thing as non-Eshed sex. There's no protection against not being joined to a person during sex. So that's where it gets a little complicated. See, now if you're married and you're married to the person you love, you want to spend the rest of your life with, oneness is really good. You actually want more of that. You actually want to experience more of that. You want that because Eshed doesn't just leave after you walk out of the bedroom, but it keeps growing stronger and stronger and stronger over time. So the more intimate you are with your spouse, over time it's going to create a deeper and a deeper bond. See, a lot of times we refer to this as a soul tie. But see, if you don't want that, if you have more of a a casual view of sex, you might not actually like this truth. And some people outside the church, they might look at me and think you're absolutely crazy. That makes no sense at all. And that's, I understand that. But I'm trying to explain why do Christians have so much theology around sex? Why do Christians have such guidelines around sex? And I want to explain that because it helps people understand what is a historical perspective of sex and why do we believe God has so many guidelines around it. See, now a lot of some people might look at me and say, okay, Jack, what you're talking about, okay, that's Old Testament. You're decking the book of Genesis, okay? That, that's Old Testament. That's not now anymore. You know, that was 2,000 years ago. Okay, you got a good point there. And say, okay, things are different because we have Jesus now. Okay, with Jesus, things are different, and that's a good thing. Because Old Testament law, you committed adultery, you'd be stoned in the parking lot after church. That doesn't happen anymore. That's good. We got Jesus here. So that's good. But I want to show you that this principle of oneness does not end in Genesis, but Paul picks up the theme in, Gen- in, in 1 Corinthians 6. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is planting a church in Corinth. And Corinth is this big metropolitan city that is known to have a lot of prostitutes. And Paul has a problem because a lot of people in his church plant, well, they, they, they're keeping the prostitutes in business. So Paul has to address the problem inside of his church and say to these guys, hey, you can't be hooking up with all these prostitutes anymore. So in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul's going to explain to the church what's going on. See, Paul says, look, Paul says, I say to you, I am allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. 
And even though I'm allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. You say food was made for the stomach and the stomach for food. This is true, though someday God will do away with both of them. But you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord, and the Lord cares about our bodies. And God will raise us up from the dead by his power, just as he raised our Lord from the dead. Don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? For the scripture says, the two are united as one. See, Paul's picking up the same theme from the book of Genesis and say the two are connected as one. Paul's bringing up this whole idea of casual sex. And see, Paul is making it clear that God, the reason that God wants boundaries on sex is because God wants to protect people. God wants people to experience the biggest experience that they can from sex and sexuality, so God is going to put guidelines around it. God is putting the guidelines around it because he wants you to experience the fullness of what he has given sex to people for. So one flesh is beautiful. We like that when you want to be connected to the person you want to be. But some of you might be thinking, okay, what do you do if you have a soul tie with somebody that you don't want that soul tie with? Some of you might be thinking, nobody ever told me this, and I get it. Some of you might have soul ties, and you're wondering, how do I get out of it? We're going to talk about that later. We're going to talk about how do you get freedom from a soul tie. But before I do that, I want to go back and talk about the order of sex that God has set forth in the Bible. I think a lot of you probably been to a Christian wedding. In a Christian wedding, it kind of sets up the order. What's the first thing that the pastor usually does? He reads Genesis 1 that says, and for this reason, a man will leave his husband and his wife, and the two will be joined together as one. We always start, every single wedding starts with that. And the pastor says, who gives this woman to be this man's bride? And the father says, his mother and I do. Okay, that's step number one. Step number two is a wedding. You have two sets of vows. You have a set of vows where the, the, new, the bride and the groom, they're gonna, they're, these are their more intimate vows together, that they're going to come up with their own vows that they're going to give to each other. This is their promise to each other. There's another set of vows that has, that's their couple's promise to God. You know the vows that the pastor reads, you promise to love, honor, obey, till death separates you, then they say, I do. That is not the couple's promise to each other. That's their promise to God. You got two sets of vows going on a wedding, one between the couple, one between the couple and God. That's why marriage suddenly becomes a covenant. It's not a contract. If the vows were simply between the husband and wife, that's a contract. The minute you start taking God in this and making plan and promises with him, marriage has entered into a covenant relationship. And that's a beautiful thing. Because the only way to have a really successful marriage is that you have the covenant relationship with God. So after the couple makes their vows and they do the covenant relationship, they exchange rings. Rings is simply a symbol of a covenant relationship with God and your spouse. And then the next thing that you do is the pastor says, and now you may kiss the bride. See, kissing the bride is actually a symbol of what's going to happen later that day. Later the day, they will have sex, and then the two will become joined as one. That is what a Christian marriage looks like. But see, so often in our culture, we put things out of order. Sometimes we put sex between, before covenant. We put sex before commitment. And the Bible is just simply trying to say, hey, if you want to have a happier life, a more 
do it this way. So what is God's plan if you need freedom from unwanted sexual assault ties? See, that's a great question. Before I answer it, I really have to address, really, what is freedom? What is freedom? We need to understand what is freedom before I can explain this uh, process, because freedom is not being able to get whatever you want whenever you want. Freedom is really the capacity to make the right choice. That's the definition of freedom. Freedom is when you can make the right choice. But the question is, who gets to decide what is the right choice to make? So I want to illustrate this principle by going back to the Ten Commandments as an illustration. Some of you might know the story of the Old Testament where the nation of Israel, the Israelites were in captivity for 400 years to the Egyptians. While they're in captivity for 400 years, they cry out to God over and over again, God, would you save us? Would you rescue us? Would you give us freedom? And so after 400 years, God hears the cry. He responds to their request for freedom. He comes in and he rescues the Israelites. He gets them out of captivity. He's going to take them through a wilderness experience and bring them into the promised land where they can enjoy the abundant life that he has for them. But before they get into the promised land, God stops them and he says, I'm going to give you the Ten Commandments. I'm going to give you Ten Commandments that I want you to follow the rest of your life. And you look at that Ten Commandments, you think, how in the world are these Israelites going to obey any of these commandments? These are people that have been traumatized by 400 years of living in captivity. For 400 years, these people have not been able to decide when to go to bed, when to get up in the morning, what food they're going to eat, what job they're going to do, how many hours a day they're going to work. They have no capacity to make decisions. And they're walking out of there, and now you're going to tell them, hey, you're going to live by these Ten Rules. They're never going to do it. So what does God do before he gives them the Ten Commandments? He gives them the Ten Commandments in Exodus 19, but the chapter before, God's going to give them a covenant relationship with him. Before God's going to request you for any obedience, he steps in with a covenant and says, I'll give you the capacity to be obedient. God never expects anybody to be obedient to him without a covenant relationship with him. God knows that would be asking way too much of any person to be able to follow him without him giving you the capacity and the ability to follow him. This is a good and compassionate God. This is not a God who's angry and says, hey, these are rules. You better follow these rules if I'm going to love you. No, no, no. That's not the God of the Old Testament. It's not the God of the New Testament. See, the God of the Bible is a God of compassion It's the God of love who says, I care for you. I want you to follow me in obedience, but I know you're not going to be able to do that unless I come in and have this covenant relationship with you. See, that's why marriage is a covenant, because there's no way that two people are ever going to get together and work through life together if God is not in the center of their marriage. So that's why God comes into weddings and says, let's just be a covenant. That's the same thing God does in our life. He says, I'll give you a covenant relationship with me. And through this covenant, you'll have obedience. So what does God do? In Exodus 20, you get 10 commandments. Exodus 19, God comes into the Israelites and he says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians how I bore you on eagles' wings, and I brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among the people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be my kingdom of priests and holy nation. See what God just said to them. 
He said, you were in captivity for 400 years. You couldn't get out on your own. For 400 years, you tried to get out of captivity. You got out because I got you out. And God says, I love you so much. I don't want you to go back to captivity. I don't want you to live in bondage. So here's 10 little rules to follow. Here's 10 things that are going to make your life a whole lot easier. But again, God says, I know you don't have the capacity to follow these things. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to have a covenant relationship with you. I'll be the God. You be the people. You follow me, and I'll do everything that you need to have a life of obedience and a life of happiness. See what does? God rescues people. And when he rescues people, it leads to a change of heart. And when your heart starts changing, you say, you know what? I want to follow this God. I want to follow Jesus. And after your heart's changed and you make that decision to follow him, you know what happens next? God gives you the heart to follow the rules that he's established. He gives you a heart to be obedient. And when you start being obedient with God, you're going to experience the happiness and joy that you've always wanted to. Happiness is a result of obedience to God. It's not a result of just doing whatever you want to do. Do you think it's going to be fun? And that's what God does for his people. He steps into your situation. He gets you out of bondage. He says, I don't want you ever to go back into bondage. See, this is so critical that we understand God's heart of compassion. The guidelines that God puts around sex and sexuality and friendship is for your protection because God doesn't want anybody in bondage. See, God's law is actually rooted in his character. Listen to what God says in Genesis 20. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery. That's how God addressed the people before he gave them the Ten Commandments. He said, I'm a God who loves you. I'm the God who came to rescue you. Don't forget that. Don't forget that because you think, oh, these rules over here, those are nonsense. They don't make sense. No, remember, I'm the God who got you out of Egypt when you could not get yourself out. These rules are meant for you, for your protection. See, every single guideline, every single commandment in the Bible is a reflection of the character of God. Do you want to know what God is like? He's a picture of perfection to the Ten Commandments. Do you know what Jesus is like? He's a picture of God. Every guideline in the Bible is to help us to get this beautiful picture of who Christ is. And God's invitation to follow his commandments is so we can become like Christ. That's what God wants from us. He wants us to become like Christ. See, Paul goes so far in Ephesians 15 that he tells us that God's intention for the relationship with a husband and wife to be fused together as one, to be fused together as body, soul, and spirit, that every time you come together, there's a deeper and a deeper fuse. Paul says that picture of marriage is the exact same picture of what he wants our relationship with Christ to be that he is the head of the church and we are the bride of Christ, that we are fused together as one. That's exactly what Jesus wants for our life, that we would be fused together with one with God. That's a picture of what God wants to do in our life. That's a picture of marriage, but that picture of marriage also shows what does our covenant relationship with Jesus look like. 
So that brings me to what do you do if you have these unwanted soul ties? What do you do if you're saying, man, I got some connections with people. I don't want to have those connections. See, this is the good news of the message. There's no sin that God cannot forgive. There's no soul tie that God cannot undo. God wants to set people free. He is the God of freedom. He is the God who rescues people and gets them out of bondage. And the other good news is, God's not mad at anybody. God doesn't hate anybody. God does not want to punish anybody. God wants to love people. God's not embarrassed by anybody either. There's nothing that you could have done or have done or want to do that embarrasses God. God has nothing but deep compassion for people. And God has a solution for every single situation that we might be in that we think, how do I get out of this? That's the good news that your relationship with Jesus is a covenant relationship. If you have decided that you want to follow Jesus, if you believe that Jesus is a king who is worthy to be followed, you enter into a covenant relationship with God. See, that's a picture of salvation. When you give up your right to lead your own life and you say, you know what, I want to follow Jesus when I want him to lead my life, that's a picture of salvation. That's a picture, a covenant picture of salvation where God comes in and he says, look, I want to be your God. I want you to be my people. Do you have faith in my son Jesus? Do you have faith that he is the one who died on the cross? Do you have faith that he is the one that can forgive your sins? If you have faith in him, if you follow him, then you enter this covenant relationship with, with God that he does things for you that you could never do on your own. When you're in this covenant relationship with Jesus, there's no limitations on your ability. There's no limitations on your capacity to follow God because God is going to make a way for you to do things that you could never, ever do on your own. See, freedom is always found in submitting to the one that set you free. That's where we find freedom. Submitting to the one that sets us free. And then when you submit to the one that sets you free, your life is going to be followed by the ability to make right choices. That doesn't mean you're, going to be temp you're not going to be tempted. That doesn't mean that you might decide think some things that looks like a fun idea, but God is going to give the ability to say no and to resist some temptations. God gives us the freedom to make good choices. See, people will come to me sometime and talk about these sexual bondages that they feel that they're in or talk about soul ties that they're in and they're like, what do you do? How do you get out of this? You know what? it's easier to get out of them than it actually was to get into them. That's the good news of the gospel, is that Jesus can set you free very fast. In fact, if you're sitting here and you're thinking, man, I think I have some soul ties, or you're at home and you're thinking, oh boy, I think I have some soul ties, you could actually find freedom from them between the time I end, end this message and the time you go into charcuterie board time. It could be that fast. Because see, Jesus has paved a way for us to be forgiven of our sins. 
If you want to submit to Jesus and you want to follow his ways, then all you simply do is you acknowledge that you've sinned before God. You repent of your sin and you ask God to set you free from any soul ties that you might have. It doesn't really take that long. See, 1 John 1 verse 9 says, but if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's that simple. Like I said, it took a whole lot longer to get into a soul tie than it's going to take you to get out of a soul tie because that's the compassion of God. That's the kindness of God. And that's the power of Jesus, that that quickly he can give you freedom. But I'll be honest with you. Sometimes it doesn't feel like it really was effective. And that was my own experience in my life. I had soul ties in my life and I thought handy dandy, I just do this and bing, I'm free. But for me, I had so much guilt and shame and condemnation that was associated with my own sexual history that it wasn't as simple as me just repenting before God and finding freedom. Sometimes you need to find a friend to talk to about what you've done in your past. See, Robert Solarum that I, I quoted in the beginning of the message said, the greatest indicator for a person to go from trauma or difficult situation to come into victory is to have a deep and a meaningful friendship with somebody that will listen to you and love you. This man did a lot of research to prove that's true. He probably spent more money than I could count. And all he had to do was go to the book of James. Because <laughs> in the book of James, it says his research right here. James 5.16, confess your sins to each other, pray for each other that you might be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has greater power and produces wonderful results. That's the power of God. When the power of God meets the power of friendship, what can happen? The person can find freedom sometimes from shame. Some of you, I, like I said, you can probably, from the time from here to the charcuterie board, you can find freedom. But some of you, maybe, maybe you have some shame that's, that's lingering around. That's when you just need to talk to somebody else and say, hey, I just need to get this off my chest. And you pray for each other and you find the healing that God has for you. That's my message. It's a simple message on marriage and sex. It's not that complicated. But we don't talk about that enough. The church hasn't talked about it again. And I, and I, and I, and I, I feel bad for people that haven't heard the message of marriage and sex and sexuality and what God has planned for it. And I want to close with this one quote by Jay Stringer. As you know, my top four books right here. This is actually a giveaway copy. This could be yours. Don't touch this book. This is mine. <laughs> this could be yours. I love what Jay Stringer says. By the way, this book is all on how sexual brokenness reveals our way to healing. Fabulous book. I want to close with this quote by Jay Stringer. I use this quote a lot. I should probably have it memorized. It's my conviction that the God of the universe is neither surprised by nor ashamed of the sexual behavior we participate in. Instead, 
he understands it to be the very stage through which the work of redemption is played out in our lives. That's beautiful. I'm going to read it again. It's my conviction that the God of the universe is neither surprised by or ashamed of the sexual behavior we participate in. Instead, he understands it to be the very stage through through which the work of redemption is played out in our lives. God looks through opportunities. To display redemption. He'll use anything. He'll use anything to display redemption. And sometimes it's the thing that we're most ashamed of. Or it's the thing that we don't like to talk about. The thing that we like to ignore. But that's the beautiful thing. God looks for the thing that you think is the darkest thing in your life and brings life out of it. That's a powerful God that can rescue people from 400 years of captivity and also rescue people from what they think is their deepest and darkest and most shameful experience in their life. That is a God of power. That's a God of love. That's not a God of rules. That's not a God of, that just wants to clobber you. That is a God of compassion. That he wants to set you free from what you think is the most ugliest part of your life. That's what God wants to do. He's not settled with just healing you from something easy in your life. He wants to take away from you what you are most embarrassed by or the, most, the part of your life that you don't like at all. That's a good God. That's a faithful God. And that's why we celebrate following Jesus because of his kindness to you. Mm-hmm.